everyone, welcome to Midcast, an interview series featuring dissenting voices the establishment would rather silence. I'm your host, Manara Mohawish Adli. Now, for far too long, government agencies have attempted to censor or infiltrate news organizations in an attempt to control the message. The U.S. is no exception to this. Turn on your TV to watch cable news and you are bound to quickly run into a former employee of a three-letter agency telling you what to think on issues of politics and security. But our guest today has been delving deeper into the growing and alarming ties between the national security state and social media as the government increases its control over Silicon Valley. Alan McLeod is senior staff writer at Mint Press. Now he joined us in 2019 after completing his PhD at the Glasgow University Media Group. He's an expert in global media theory and he has published two books on the topic, um, Bad News from Venezuela, 20 Years of Fake News and Misreporting and Propaganda in the Information Age, Still Manufacturing Consent. Alan, so thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it's good to be with you again, Manar. Um, so in your latest article that's uh, published on Mint Press News, you explored the troubling past of Reddit director of policy, Jessica Ashush. Could you tell us what you found about her and her relationship with the national security state? Yeah, sure. So maybe a first a little bit about Reddit. Uh, it's a very influential social media and news site. It's actually the eighth most visited site in the United States. Um, and it's got this reputation as being a sort of anarchic, anti-establishment um, place to go and where people have discussions. But um, in, a few years ago in 2017, Jessica Shu was appointed as director of policy. And that was really out of left field, because when you look at her background, she is essentially a foreign policy hawk. She had jobs at the Cato Institute, at the Council of Foreign Relations, but perhaps most notably, <clears throat> she was uh, working at the Atlantic Council, which is essentially uh, a NATO front group. And there she was um, working directly under Madeleine Albright and Stephen Hadley. Uh, Albright was, I believe she was Secretary of State under the Clinton administration. She was uh, one of the people who was most directly involved in uh, the violence in the Middle East. She famously went on television and said that 500 dead uh, 500,000 dead Iraqi children was a price worth paying for trying to put the pain to Saddam Hussein. Stephen Hadley, of course, was one of the real intellectual architects of the Patriot Act. He was one of the key men in the Bush administration. And so these are the sorts of people that Ashu has been working under for years. And uh, at the Atlantic Council, she was a Middle East expert, and her favorite subject was probably Syria. Um, that was really what she was concentrating on. She was a uh, scholar at Oxford University, then hot housed into these very hawkish, warlike Washington institutions. And she has absolutely no background in social media or in marketing. And so it was very suspicious um, that she was given this job, especially it was at directly the time when uh, government officials, members of Congress, was talking about how uh, the internet needed to be much more tightly regulated on right. the grounds of hate speech, on the grounds of, you know, the rising far right, and on the grounds of disinformation, particularly coming from uh, foreign actors. And so this really uh, started people thinking that maybe she was some sort of a uh, government plant, especially as she's dedicated her life to uh, looking at how the US can increase its control and influence over the Middle East. 
And so, yeah, I, I think this is a very worrying development and it's one we're seeing in other social media uh, websites as well. Well, Reddit is really interesting. As you mentioned, it's, you know, one of the top eight um, websites in the whole world accruing and attracting uh, billions of views uh, to its um to its website. So it has a lot of influence about the free flow of information. Um, you know, Reddit has been obviously under the microscope for how much censorship takes place there. Um, I know Mitt Press specifically um, has been shadow banned on Reddit and a lot of independent and alternative media outlets have been shadow banned on Reddit um, that cover Western imperialism and the military industrial complex. But, you know, you make a really good point that she has a... Um, you know, she herself focuses a lot on the Middle East, which is where the United States is um, operating very heavily um, under the guise of the, of the war on terror. Um, talking about her background with Middle Eastern dictatorships like the United Arab Emirates. Yeah, sure. So when Ashur was appointed in 2017, I went back and checked and to see, just to see if any media outlet had even commented about it. And I could find absolutely nothing on Google or uh, on Dan Jones, Factiva, or any of the big news databases. So that was pretty suspicious, especially when you look at her LinkedIn page where she just proudly displays what she's been up to. So for a number of years, uh, she was working directly for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the UAE, where she worked directly underneath uh, an Emirati Air Force general, a retired one. And she says in her own uh, LinkedIn page that her particular focus working for the UAE was to devise and advise them on their Syria policy. Now, anyone who knows much about the war in Syria knows that the UAE have been funding jihadist groups like all, well, you know, all of them, al-Nusra, al-Qaeda, ISIS, all of these groups that are uh, mixed in together to form what most people call just the opposition or the rebels. Uh, this is particularly uh, surprising and worrying. You know, um, Joe Biden himself in a Q&A session in 2014 said that um, the Emiratis have poured hundreds of millions of dollars and tens of thousands of tons of weapons into anyone who would fight against Assad, except that the people who they were being supplied were al-Nusra and al-Qaeda and the extremist elements of jihadists coming from other parts of the world. And so that was a direct quote from him. And so this is really what Ashu has been doing. It seems, judging, reading between the lines, that she's really been, um, you know, advising the UAE on how to better train, fund and arm these uh, Islamist jihadist rebel groups that have done so much devastation, not just in Syria, but of course, across the entire Middle East. And again, if you, you know, if you look at her output, she, for years, uh, was writing in um, big outlets like the New York Times talking about uh, she had, uh, for instance, she had an op-ed there that demanded that the U.S. better, far, uh, better fund the opposition and arm them with anti-aircraft missiles or anti-tank shells or what have you. She also, even though she's, uh, I think, probably kind of mainstream corporate Democrat in her own political views, she really chastised uh, Barack Obama in the pages of the Washington Post saying that he had essentially, you know, uh, failed to act in in Syria and that Donald Trump now has this golden opportunity to right wrongs and, as she said, quote, restore U.S. credibility in Syria. Um, 
in that article, she also said that she was part of quite a high-level team who, right after the uh, suspected chemical attack in uh, Douma in 2018, in, uh, sorry, 2013, so that was the Ghouta attack, uh, she flew to Istanbul and met with uh, representatives of the, of the United States, of the Syrian opposition, and also regional leaders to try to uh, come up with some sort of strategy to counter Assad. So she was clearly a very high player in this game. Uh, she also worked for the government of Iraq, uh, working for a company that uh, was very much you know, involved in um, the rebuilding of Iraq. So again, that company had a lot of ties to the US government and the US military. Uh, she, you know, in contrast with her dislike of Syria, she's got a very much an affinity for both Saudi Arabia and the UAE. And that really kind of uh, takes the shine off of her supposed um, opposition to Middle Eastern dictators. In fact, I found uh, an article where she was asked what her dream job would be. And she said it would be to be the ambassador to Saudi Arabia. And she's even got an, an article at Market Watch where she describes how the government of Mohammed bin Salman is so progressive and so forward thinking, and they're really changing the uh, the Middle East for the better and making it a dynamic Sounds like place. Go live in Saudi Arabia, right? <laughs> yeah, incredible. And be a woman so, there. right? So yeah, I mean that's what she was doing, uh, working for these companies and these um, these governments, and so this whole you know quantum leap to becoming the director of policy for a sort of social media website which uh, mostly has tech people on their board or marketing people is uh, deeply suspicious indeed and yeah as I said it does mirror what happened with Facebook and also with Twitter at the same time. Right and um, you know she sounds like a typical neoliberal hawk is what she sounds like um, and these are the very people that work directly with think tanks, uh, hawkish think tanks like the Atlantic Council, who are directly funded by Saudi Arabia um, and by weapons manufacturers like Raytheon and Northrop Grumman and apartheid Israel. And they're very much allied with the, like the Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton uh, establishment hawks, neoliberal hawks uh, that promote war and, and profit off of war. Um, and so before we talk about the Atlantic Council, you know, I'm just curious to know how has her being the policy director at um, Reddit influenced their coverage, influenced the, inf influenced the information that makes it to Reddit? Like if you were to look at Reddit right now, could you see a direct link between her being a policy director and the kind of articles and links and posts that, that are allowed or the kinds of conversations that are allowed because, you know, when Reddit was first started, um, it was all about, you know, freedom of expression in this like place where people can just openly discuss and post anything. Like where are we at right now after her being appointed to this position? Well, I think it's uh, impossible to say that, you know, one uh, thing, you know, proves the other, but her appointment is certainly uh, another uh, point of reference in a real gradual but quite distinct change in what Reddit had started off as being and to what Reddit became. So for years and years, Reddit was this kind of, it was kind of run along very strict libertarian free market, uh, you know, marketplace of ideas, um, ideology, where they absolutely anathema to banning anything 
And that really got them in a lot of trouble. They hosted a lot of really serious content, illegal stuff, streaming stuff, piracy, a lot of illegal porn, even like child stuff as well, which was, uh, you know, pilloried in the press and, you know, potentially quite rightly, but they stuck to this sort of uh, model. But uh, I think when Reddit was bought by Condé Nast, which is a big publisher, which owns a ton of magazines, um, I think that was one of the signals that it was going to change in policy and become much more advertiser friendly. And certainly since Ashu came in in 2017, Reddit's um, revenue has gone through the roof as marketers and advertisers and big businesses have seen the value in advertising with them. But Ashu has certainly, if not been the principal architect, certainly overseen uh, a real change in policy in Reddit. So we've seen, um, you know, in one day in 2018, she decided to ban over a thousand communities on Reddit. Uh, a lot of the most notorious ones are gone, like for instance, uh, the Donald Trump subreddit, the Donald, that was one of the major organizing uh, locations for the movement uh, to get him elected as president. It was one of the most active communities. They've banned a lot of racist ones, a lot of uh, questionable things that might uh, get them in trouble with, um, with big companies who want to advertise with them. But also, as they banned right-wing ones, they've also banned left-wing ones, like, for instance, Chapo Trap House, which was the biggest left-wing organizing subreddit going. And so it's kind of this tit-for-tat thing where increasingly there is a sort of beltway of expressible opinion on Reddit where um, you're not really uh, encouraged to go uh, out with those bounds of expressibility. And, you know, you can basically say that Reddit is very slowly turning into more of a, a mainstream uh, place to get your news rather than an alternative one. Okay, absolutely. And I couldn't agree more. I mean, I know a lot of independent media outlets have been shadow banned or completely blocked from sharing their links um, compared to like 10 years ago or eight years ago where, you know, Mint Press could have been made, you know, could have made it to the front page of uh, Reddit where, where right now that's pretty much <laughs> impossible. Um, let's talk about the relationship between Ashu and I, by the way, I called her Ashush at the very beginning. It's Ashu. Um, her relationship with the Atlantic Council and um, the Atlantic Council's relationship with social media, um, you know, tech giants and why this is so dangerous. Well, for those who don't know, the Atlantic Council, as I said uh, before, is uh, essentially NATO's brain. It's the think tank that is uh, aligned with NATO. Uh, that I think that's one of the reasons why it's called the Atlantic Council from the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And it's funded by NATO, by all branches of the U.S. military, by the U.S. government, by NATO member states, by Gulf uh, dictatorships like the UAE, I believe and also by big companies, big tech companies, and uh, big weapons contractors. And if you look at their board of directors, it really gives you a feeling for what their outlook is. On that board, we've got um, uh, famous, infamous war planners like Henry Kissinger, who was uh, you know, the architect of all the terrible genocidal wars in Indochina that the US waged in the 1960s and 1970s. You've also got a lot of uh, Bush-era neocons like Condoleezza Rice or uh, Robert Gates or Colin Powell. They're on the board too. There is a swath of military generals like General H.R. McMaster, David Petraeus, General Wesley Clark, uh, Admiral James Stavridis is on there as well. 
And not only that, there's also no fewer than seven former uh, directors of the CIA on there, like Leon Panetta, Michael Hayden, and uh, many others. I think, in fact, almost uh, in fact, a majority of the living ex-CIA directors are on that. And so really, the Atlantic Council kind of represents the, the ultimate centrist establishment think tank for uh, a foreign policy for NATO. And so it's uh, very hawkish. It's very sort of... Uh, you know, bipartisan in that sense. Uh, but they've also, you know, as I said, on their board, they've got the architects of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the Atlantic Council have certainly been somebody who has, um, you know, really got themselves involved in the political uh, milieu in the last few years. Uh, they've been pumping out a lot of, um, a lot of articles that have really uh, pushed the, the Russiagate narrative to its uh, zenith. For instance, they released a whole bunch of, um, of reports uh, which accused pretty much every political party in Europe that was out with this uh, beltway between you know, liberal and conservative as being the Kremlin's Trojan horses. So for instance, in the United Kingdom, on the left, it was Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, and on the right, it was the UKIP party that were both secretly controlled by Putin somehow. Or in Spain, it was uh, Vox and Podemos. Or in Italy, it was Legia Nora and the Five Star Movement. Or in Greece, it was Syriza and Golden Dawn. And so they've really been uh, talking a lot about how Russia is um, secretly controlling our politics, increasingly controlling uh, our social media. And they've been offering their services to a lot of uh, big companies to try to protect against that. And so what we've seen uh, recently, for instance, uh, Facebook has partnered with the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensics Lab. And what the uh, Atlantic Council do for them is essentially curate the news feeds of 2.8 billion people worldwide who use Facebook. Uh, the Atlantic Council essentially help Facebook decide what news should be promoted, what posts should be discarded, deleted, or you know, demonetized. And that has really led to a situation where a lot of alternative media have been utterly smashed by the algorithm changes. And we've seen uh, quote-unquote verifiable authoritative sources like Fox News or CNN being pushed up the rankings by Facebook to the point where a lot of alternative media have pretty much given up on the platform in, in its entirety. Uh, earlier this year, we also saw um, Facebook hire a former NATO press officer, Ben Nimmo, as its chief of intelligence. So there's another kind of link in the uh, growing network of partnerships between Silicon Valley and, um, and Washington national security state apparatus. So yeah, I mean, one other thing I can say is that Twitter has also joined this game uh, in 2019, very interestingly, it was revealed that a senior Twitter executive who was actually responsible for the entire Middle East region, uh, he was outed as a, an active duty officer in the British Army's 77th Brigade, which is their unit, which is dedicated to online warfare and psychological operations. And the reaction to this is perhaps more important than the reality of what happened. The reaction was, pretty much a big shrug of the shoulders in the US. This came at a time when people were getting increasingly worried about foreign manipulation of social media. 
And yet when this verifiable fact happened, there was only one national news outlet which even mentioned it, and that was Newsweek. I interviewed that journalist, and he was essentially forced out a few weeks later talking about how there was such a stifling, top-down uh, range of censorship on certain issues uh, that he preferred to just walk away rather than get fired. So I think we're living in this era where um, when groups like the Atlantic Council, considering who is on their board, are shaping the sort of news we see, uh, which is, of course, uh, really important. I mean, Facebook is the biggest, um, uh, biggest supplier of news to Americans and to Europeans and to people all around the world. Far more people rely on it than for uh, television channels or newspapers. When a group like the Atlantic Council is essentially deciding what everybody around the world sees and reads in their news feeds, that is tantamount to state censorship on an enormous level, on a global scale. And that's something that everybody who is uh, interested in democracy and freedom of expression should certainly be looking into. Absolutely. And just recently, I mean, the last, what, 24 hours, the U.S. government seized, um, you know, speaking of, you know, freedom of speech and freedom of expression online and control of the Internet and social media tech giants, the United States seized over, what is it, I think it was like over 30 Iranian uh, linked websites and, uh, you know, Muslim Shia religious organization websites um, under the guise of, you know, fighting terrorism or, you know, sanctions laws. So very clearly, there's a direct link between, um, you know, the past, I would say, like six years of these social media tech giants, uh, the national security state working directly with these think tanks to take control over the free flow of information, to control the narrative, and to ensure that only corporate media um, you know, and corporate journalists and their narratives that support um, the U.S. military industrial complex and U.S. Uh, imperialism uh, basically reign supreme on the internet. Um, I think people are slowly coming around to the idea that the internet is not completely uh, you know, open, lawless space where you can just do anything, post anything, but actually a medium created and controlled by the U.S. government. Um, talk to me about the origins of the internet and um, this recent seizure of these websites. Yeah, so <clears throat> as you said, I think there's quite a popular view uh, in the public that the internet is this wonderful, unregulated space that, yeah. and you know, in the 90s and 2000s, there was a lot of sort of tech utopianism around the internet, thinking that, you know, perhaps uh, this system will actually set us free and uh, increase the connections between uh, people on different sides of the planet. And it will, you know, launch a new wave, a new era of understanding uh, that will help everyone. But I think now we're living in the 2020s, we can say that that really uh, was pretty rose-tinted and actually quite the opposite has happened in certain, uh, in certain aspects. And of course, if you look at the history of the internet, it's not this sort of uh, stateless, lawless place. It was there, you know, there are very real concrete uh, beginnings to the internet. And it came out of the US uh, military's uh, DARPAnet. And so much of the funding from the early uh, days of the internet went into big universities like in uh, California or Massachusetts Institute of Technology. This is really where the internet was first uh, begun. And 
what that means is that it's really an American operation and the American government has significant control over it. And we saw that with uh, the US banning press TV, as you said uh, recently. But um, what a lot of people might not know is that uh, any domain which ends in .com, .org, .net or .tv, uh, the US government does indeed have the power to seize it and take it down from the internet. So while we think about cyberspace as this very nebulous thing which doesn't really exist in reality, these servers actually do have a, a very real physical location and most of them are in the US. And with the same with social media, uh, all these companies that we think are international are actually very much based in the US, most of them in California. Right. And they have, and the United States government really does have a lot of, can exert a lot of pressure on these um, companies. Um, one example is um, just uh, in early 2019, excuse me, early 2020, when uh, the Trump administration assassinated Iranian General Qasem Soleimani. Um, the Iranians were obviously rather upset about this. Soleimani, according to US polls, was the most popular living person in the country. He had a, an approval rating of over 80% among Iranians. But because the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is the organization he led, was designated a terrorist group by the Trump administration, that meant that it was illegal for Facebook and Instagram, American companies, to carry any message which could, seem, which could be seen as promoting them or uh, in support of them. Now, Instagram is super popular in Iran. It's estimated that around one third of all people have an Instagram account. And that meant that Facebook, its parent company, was forced to delete messages opposing the uh, killing of General Soleimani and uh, uh, presenting him as a hero. A lot of the time, these messages were in uh, Farsi, written by Iranians to other Iranians, and they were representing a very much a majority opinion in that country. But because Trump had lent, had decided that uh, Soleimani was indeed a terrorist, that meant that uh, Facebook and Instagram had to act on his behalf. Um, we've also seen social media companies deleting well, tens of thousands of accounts from Iran, from China, from Venezuela, from Cuba. It always, however, it seems that they find uh, illegal activity or suspicious um, bot networks coming from enemies of the United States government and never emanating from the US or its allies itself, even though many of these countries are semi-open about the fact that they do uh, manipulate social media in much the same way that Russia or China or Iran is, um, is uh, accused of doing. And so much of 2020 was, um, was punctuated by kind of a hysteria over uh, chi increased Chinese um, influence over the internet. I'm thinking about the TikTok controversy where uh, Mike Pompeo would go on television and say, don't let your children use TikTok because you are uh, essentially using a tool of the Chinese Communist Party or the, Ch or the Red Army. Uh, there was the big controversy over Huawei uh, developing a 5G network that was going to be pretty much independent of US control. And so there's this real battle going on uh, for the internet right now. And the hardware is very much, um, very much something that can be used to control and manipulate uh, the global means of communication. And that's why the US is so interested in keeping that control very much uh, within its own hands. 
Right. And obviously these, you know, social media tech giants working with the think tanks and working directly with the national security state and the U.S. government are ensuring that um, what's being propped up on social media are journalists that work for the national security state. Um, you, um, as our senior staff writer, you um, wrote this incredible, incredible um, investigation called the Notorious London Spy School, uh, churning out many of the world's top journalists. You detail how this Department of War Studies is breeding ground for both the world's top spies and the world's top journalists, excuse me, um, that obviously social media tech giants are happy to prop up and celebrate while suppressing independent journalists and independent media outlets. Talk to us about, about your investigation. Yeah, that really came out of a previous investigation I did into Bellingcat, which presents itself as this kind of information network for the people, this open source uh, investigative outlet, which you know is kind of governmentless. But when you really start looking at where they get their funding and who is actually writing the articles, it becomes pretty clear uh, pretty quickly that this is just a sort of Western government front opera uh, operation. Mm -hmm. uh, what I found when I was looking at Bellingcat was that so many of the people who write for them uh, all went to the same college and did the same uh, graduate, uh, postgraduate degree at the same department in the same college in the same university in London, which is the Department of War Studies. And I was looking, I decided to look at their um, academics and it is remarkable the amount of people who are active duty officers in NATO member states. So, uh, you know, basically directors of NATO. We have a former director general of NATO on the teaching staff, former UK minister of defense, former CIA agents, former Israeli defense forces um, uh, officers. Uh, also, a lot of members of very hawkish think tanks, which are funded by both the US and UK governments. And in fact, um, the Department of War Studies actually presents itself as somewhere uh, and pitches itself to Western security organizations as somewhere where they should actually send uh, their operatives. Uh, in a CIA publication or in an article that was published in the CIA's, CIA's in-house journal, two King's College academics actually said that, you know, it's really good for organizations like the CIA to have more people with an academic background as it really um, enriches uh, their intelligence gathering opportunities and uh, their skills. And, uh, you know, this is a totally, it's kind of an open secret that the Department of War Studies is the place that uh, Western spies and spooks go to be uh, trained. So, you know, uh, Leon Panetta, who at the time uh, was former CIA director and was also uh, Secretary of Defense for the US at the time, he went to London in 2013 to give a talk there and said he, he was profoundly, um, uh, profoundly thankful for the work they did there in training what he said was the future national security leaders, many of whom are in this audience with me tonight. And so it's kind of an open secret, as I said, that, you know, this place is, um, you know, a breeding ground for uh, spies and spooks. Uh, that's very worrying because as I looked more into this department, it also seemed that so many of the world's top journalists also graduate from this same small study group uh, the same and do the same postgraduate course in the same uh, department. So we see 
senior members of the BBC, of CNN, of Al Jazeera, producers for NBC News have all graduated from this uh, school. And uh, news organizations from around the world have alumni from the Department of War Studies working in very high positions. Um, one example I could give you is Andrew Carey, who made uh, a little bit of news recently. He's the CNN uh, Jerusalem bureau chief. He recently sent an internal memo that was leaked to CNN, uh, to all CNN employees who write about the Middle East saying that whenever we talk about the Ministry of Health in Gaza, we have to remind all our uh, viewers or listeners that the Ministry of Health is controlled by Hamas. Because of course, this was at the time when Israel Hamas, was bombing right? Gaza, killing, killing dozens of people. And so, uh, they had to say, you know, remember the Gazan Ministry of Health who are saying hundreds of people are dying. That's Hamas. So they were undermining the entire Palestinian side of the argument uh, very carefully and consciously. Um, and so I suppose uh, it's not really an accident that this is happening, that so many people are being trained at the same school that spies and journalists are coming out of, because unfortunately there is an increasing, uh, increasingly close relationship between big media and big government. If you turn on your TV set and watch cable news, you are almost bound to see former CIA officials, former DEA officials, or former FBI officials on there. You know, John Brennan, James Clapper, Michael Hayden, Everybody does it from Fox to CNN to NBC to MSNBC. They're all there. Um, a lot of them even, you know, present shows. Anderson Cooper famously was a former CIA intern. Tucker Carlson from Fox News applied to the CIA but was rejected. And somebody like Mika Brzezinski on MSNBC, well, her father is Zbigniew Brzezinski, who's like the Democrats version of Henry Kissinger, somebody who... Um, planned wars for decades, wars in Afghanistan, wars in dirty wars in Central America. Uh, these are the sorts of people who we are supposed to be relying on to hold the powerful account uh, accountable. But when you actually look at their backgrounds, they're part of the same power system themselves. And so that's really what this article was getting, um, was really getting at is that unfortunately, uh, there seems to be no real difference between uh, big media and big government anymore. And that's a real problem for uh, an open society and a democracy in general. Well, didn't Noam Chomsky famously say uh, any dictator would admire the conformity of the U.S. media system here in the United States? And this is, I mean, you just brilliantly laid it all out uh, in such simplistic terms about, you know, the, the crossover between um, the national security state um, and journalists. Um, let's talk a little bit about the algorithms and censorship uh, that's taking place against um, alternative and independent media. Do you think this problem of government control and manipulation of media will get better or worse in the short term? I think the short answer to that is <laughs> it's much more likely to get worse than better. What we've seen since the rise of Donald Trump and the very surprising victory, which shocked pretty much everyone in Washington and people around the world as well, uh, was some the, the quote-unquote establishment, the democratic establishment and the media who had been uh, lambasting Trump for months uh, needed some sort of um, uh, excuse or reasoning 
for why the most unpopular person who's ever run for president for a major political party uh, managed to beat out this seasoned professional, this uh, longtime um, uh, veteran of Washington in Hillary Clinton. And very quickly, uh, the Clinton campaign and the media seemed to coalesce around the idea that the problem was online disinformation that had been pushed by foreign countries, particularly Russia. And so what happened in 2016 and 2017 was that um, big media outlets, uh, sorry, big social media outlets like Reddit, like Facebook, Twitter, Google, and YouTube changed their algorithms to uh, reportedly push more authoritative news sources and de-rank, de-list, or demote uh, fake news or very low quality uh, news. And, you know, fair enough, there was certainly a lot of absolute nonsense being widely circulated in 2015 and 2016. But I think the main effect of those algorithmic changes has been to promote uh, legacy media like CNN or Fox News or MSNBC, the Washington Post or what have you, to new uh, levels of authority, pushing them up the rankings to first in the Google search or number one on YouTube and pushing out what they call borderline content um, to the margins. So it's pretty rare that uh, things get deleted, but if you consign something to page five of a Google search, nobody's gonna see it. And so what we've seen is really high quality independent media have been completely smashed by this uh, algorithmic change. I know Mint Press has been particularly badly affected, but you know, Democracy Now! or The Intercept or Common Dreams or Counterpunch have all seen disastrous drops in Google uh, traffic almost overnight. And we see the same with uh, YouTube um, creators as well. Anyone who's in this sort of political realm, but is outside that sort of beltway, that establishment has seen their subscriber count essentially flatline. Right. Uh, they're not, their videos are not being promoted uh, by the YouTube algorithm. Whereas uh, authoritative sources um, like CNN or Fox or what have you, are really pushed up to number one and number two, and they're constantly pushed on us. But the problem is, is that most of us have gone to the internet as a way of uh, finding an alternative or an antidote to the stifling conformity of corporate media that we see when we either buy a newspaper or switch on the radio or turn on the television, where it's just pretty much one of the two uh, pretty much uh, identical opinions when it comes to war or foreign policy or economics and two uh, partisan elitist groups just shouting at each other about issues that don't really affect that many people worldwide. And so, yeah, unfortunately, borderline content has been completely removed and, or at least uh, disincentivized. And in fact, uh, last year, Facebook even admitted that it was uh, deliberately uh, censoring uh, the outlet Mother Jones because it saw itself as a bit too left-wing for its liking. Now, anyone who reads Mother Jones will see it's kind of a very sort of milk toast liberal publication. Yes. So if they're admitting that they're doing that to Mother Jones, what are they doing to what are they doing to outlets like Mint Press or Grey Zone or uh, Counterpunch or Common Dreams or whatever? It's it's uh, you know when you start thinking about it like that, it's uh, it's a really huge change that nobody talked about, nobody voted about, and in fact, most people don't even know has happened. And that is a huge uh, red flag for a democracy. Absolutely. And I just want to kind of bounce 
off of what you said about, you know, how social media algorithms have affected independent media. Um, before the 2016 elections, for example, like Mint Press um, was still like a fresh new independent media outlet. And we were getting between anywhere from 100 to 150,000 unique visitors to our website every single day, which is like incredible for independent media. I mean, this was like at a time when you launched a website, you know, there was like, you you could make it to the top. And we were registered under uh, Google News. Um, we were approved for that. And we were appearing literally on the first page of Google News, sometimes at the very, very top. And so, um, and you know, we were also able to monetize uh, from a lot of the content that we were, we were publishing because we had such a high traffic for such a small website. Um, but slowly but surely, those things started to change in the last four years as um, you know, this cry for cracking down on, you know, Russian disinformation <laughs> and any sort of kind of fake news. And, and then all of a sudden we saw like you, you, you described and explained how social media tech giants partnered up with these hawkish think tanks and the national security state to basically crack down. And so what we started to see was this like decline in our readership and we weren't able to get as many readers from Facebook like we used to uh, get. Um, and now we're like struggling. It's like, it's like a, we're like pushing through, but like we can't break the, that ceiling. They've, you know, they've put a block on us. Um, and then, you know, we used to make the trends. Press used to be on the trends. Our articles used to make it to the trends. We used to go viral. Um, we used to be at the top of Reddit. Uh, those things are just basically impossible now. Um, to happen. Um, another thing I wanted to mention is like the, you know, Google ad violations where we've, we're obviously moving away from Google ads completely. Um, but Google ad violations, like every, on a, like almost a weekly basis, we're getting Google ad violations, threatening to demonetize articles because we're covering war crimes. Or I remember bringing attention to an article that we published about uh, U.S. human rights abuses at Abu Ghraib and Google demonetized that article because it was, you know, went against their like standards um, and then demonetization of a lot of YouTube uh, content as well. So there's clearly a deliberate effort to suppress and throttle um, and shadow ban um, independent outlets. So I think, um, you know, we've talked about a lot of things here. They're all related, of course. And Alan, you are just like this wealth of information, the source of so much information. I'm, it's so good to talk to you. <laughs> um, and I'm sure everyone who's listening is really learning a lot from you. I mean, you, you truly are a scholar. You truly are a scholar. Um, I think people are trying to figure out like, what is the solution? I mean, I, we talk about this issue so much and like, what is the solution? I mean, people have called for like boycotts of social media tech giants, like get off Facebook, get off Twitter, get off Instagram, go to alternative um, social media outlets. But then the mass people are not actually migrating over to um, these alternatives. I mean, I feel like there is a, a better solution, but what, what do you think the solution is based off of your research? Yeah, I mean, it is, we do live in an upside down world where the people most crying for censorship seem to be journalists or, uh, you know, the top journalists in our nation. And that's really worrying, especially because so many of the, uh, the biggest outlets are the ones most responsible for the biggest fake news stories of the 21st century, like, for instance, the WDMD hoax in Iraq. So we do live in this very difficult world where, unfortunately, the internet isn't this sort of uh, 
free place where everybody has a, an equal say, but is in fact quite closely regulated now. I suppose in terms of solutions, there's, there's kind of individual solutions and there's a more group solution. For individuals, I always recommend uh, deliberately trying to go out of your little bubble and trying to look for news, perhaps from different countries, perhaps from you know uh, rival countries. There's so many uh, outlets that um, publish stuff in English, whether it's from the Middle East or from Russia or from Latin America. And you'll get to see a completely different viewpoint. You'll get to see or hear figures that just won't appear in our corporate media here. And that's very good to help you triangulate what's going on in your own media. It doesn't mean you have to believe what's uh, what they say, but it helps you for once see that there is a different opinion and you right. can start to work out what the spectrum is. Um, I think it's in, in, imperative that people who really believe in a free media start to think about ways that they can support those media and get those uh, media either more money or more attention or help them in some way. Thankfully, I think in the last couple of years, we've really seen the idea of donating to small media outlets uh, increase. We've seen you know, uh, sites like Patreon uh, become very popular and journalists can uh, make a living there and so can um, independent media outlets. But I mean, I guess uh, there are other tactics that we can try and like just uh, trying to break the uh, stranglehold of uh, big tech on our things. We can maybe try to uh, get our outlets directly mail shotted to people so they're not really going through the medium of a Facebook algorithm or a Google algorithm. But these things are absolutely an uphill battle. And so it's certainly not easy. But uh, first things first, we have to at least recognize there's a problem. And then I think also uh, alternative media really has to try and find a way to work together and see there is in all of our common interests to uh, go back to a system that's much more free and open. Um, because otherwise we're just going to see the internet turn into basically what, uh, what uh, the television is, where it's a very limited form of expression. Uh, and, you know, maybe if you know about a certain website, you can find alternative opinions, but ultimately if the tools you're using to look for opinions on news, uh, are controlled by big corporations, uh, the biggest corporations in the world, in some cases, that is hugely problematic. And so, yeah, uh, I don't really have the answer of uh, what we should do, but there's certainly things that we can do, which is put our money where our mouth is, try and help independent media as much as possible, try to be much more um, conscious and active consumers of news and really think about things. And also go back to face-to-face -face organizing as well, because it's remarkable how much more convincing a real person is than you know, uh, some person online. Uh, you might think that, you know, you've got 800 friends on Facebook, but I can tell you that, um, you know, uh, actually talking to someone face-to-face -face is much uh, more valuable than getting a thumbs up uh, on Facebook or a heart on Twitter. That's absolutely correct. And I actually was just talking about this. I, I said the same thing or something similar um, during the surveillance capitalism panel that I was speaking on as well. You know, we have to detach and break our addiction from social media because actually social media tech giants and the US government, the national security state, they want us to be addicted and glued to our screens while they are in reality in the real world are completely plundering uh, us, you know, uh, pushing this divide and, and you know, uh, divide and conquer narrative. They're 
able to push through with their agenda while we are sitting there glued to our screens, getting these dopamine rushes because we're getting that like, or we're getting that, you know, care heart on Facebook. Um, and something, you know, Alan, that I definitely agree with you with is we have to put our money where our mouth is in support of independent journalism. Um, you know, when I was doing the live streams in the last month, I started each live stream reminding people that we have to work together and support independent media um, by helping us beat social media algorithms by sharing our live streams. The same goes for, um, you know, this segment for the Mintcast podcast. Um, if you're watching this, um, obviously you should be following Alan McLeod on uh, social media. He's an investigative journalist. He's our senior staff writer. And like, I'm so proud to be working with you, Alan. You're such a wealth of <laughs> information. Um, and support Mint Press as well, um, you know, through Patreon and, and to make this show, this, this program uh, possible. But that is a wrap for today. Um, Alan, it was such a joy to speak with you. I learn so much from you every time I speak to you. I, I really appreciate you being here and explaining this issue to us so much. Oh, it was great to speak to you again. <laughs> Thank you, Alan. All right. So um, just a reminder that the Midcast podcast is available on our YouTube channel in video format, like you're seeing us now. Um, but if you prefer, we, this also comes in a podcast format. You can find format you can find it on spotify and itunes um if you look up mintcast that's a wrap we will see you guys next week thank you